0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, as we plan to finish the Sermon on the Mount today, Matthew chapter 7, just so we can hear all together in one reading the conclusion warnings that Jesus ends this sermon on. I'm going to read the whole section that we've heard now several times over the last few weeks. Matthew chapter 7, this is verses 13 to the end of the chapter, and this is the Word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that as we begin to try to unpack these uh, verses that you would make their meaning plain to us, clear to us, I pray that you would humble us under your word, that you would help us to be like those who are humble and contrite, who tremble at your word, that we would want to submit our heart, our lives to the examination that your word provides. And God, I I pray that you would search us and know us, that you would reveal to us where we are, and that you would lead us towards Jesus. And I pray you'd be honored in these next minutes in Jesus' name, amen. I'll say a couple of introductory comments here before we dive into some of the points from this passage. Uh, number one, I'll start with the very end here, the last two verses of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really after Jesus is done speaking. If you remember, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went up on the mountain, and now He's about to come down the mountain. And here's what eight, 7, 28, and 29 say one more time. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It was very common in Jewish teaching, uh, especially as the rabbis developed over time, it was very common amongst the Jewish people and the leaders when they would uh, quote uh, and, and teach, they would very often quote other rabbis. Now we we do something similar. I might quote other pastors or other theologians as I teach. And that's part of what it, you know, we we grow as we learn from other people. But it was very common for a rabbi to say, okay, as Rabbi Hillel said, as Rabbi Gamaliel said, as Rabbi whoever it was said, and that they build their teaching on so-and-so said this about so-and-so, and and this other person said this, and this, it was just a, a, a mountain of quotations is how they often would teach. And you'll notice here, Jesus does not do that. Jesus says things like, if you obey my words, you'll make it through the final judgment if you do not obey my words, you will not. He puts his own words in the place of God's words, really making himself equal to God. He then presents himself, I mean, look at seven, sometimes we can overlook this. 723, and then on the day of judgment, he's talking about, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see what position Jesus has just put himself in on the day of judgment? Jesus is the Judge. Now, again, that's either unimaginable arrogance or truth. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the judge on the final day of judgment. How you respond to my words and how I respond to you is going to determine your eternal destiny. he, He is the judge on this last day. So, there is no question Jesus spoke with authority. And as you know, earlier, he would say over and over, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, this was very against the, the way things were done in the culture at that time. And the crowds were astonished at the authoritative way in which Jesus was speaking. Now let's move into more of our subject for today, verses 24 to 27, the house built on the rock, the house built on the sand. And before we jump into that, let me, let me say a word here about uh, the topic of introspection. So if you don't know what that is, and you, you probably have a sense of what that is, Um, there's a famous quote that's attributed to just about everybody, but it's been often attributed to Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher who died in his late 20s. Uh, For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. You've probably heard that quote somewhere along the way from different people. And it's a wonderful saying. I think it's a great saying. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And in our teaching at our church, we, we, we hope, we try to put much more attention on Jesus than simply on ourselves. We, we want to be focusing on what Christ has done. We, we talk about the gospel and his work all the time, and we want to continue to at our church. Well, let, me, let me just say something about a couple things about introspection, which is looking at yourself, looking within yourself, trying to examine your own motives, trying to examine your own actions. Why do I do what I do? Is this really to honor God or is it just because I love myself? Or, you know, these are, this is introspection, looking within to try to understand what's going on. Let me say, number one, this is important. That, that statement, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ, is absolutely right. But, but listen, it still means we occasionally take a one look at ourselves. <laughs> so we're, we're not saying all introspection is bad. The Bible commands some introspection. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, unless you've realized, of course, that you have failed the test. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, when you, when you think of an examination or a test, and I know we're getting close to May, and for some of you, that, those are scary words right now, the word exam, the word test. Every student knows, we all know from experience, we've all taken exams. We've all taken tests. And here, here's, here's one thing I know. Exams and tests are full of Questions. That's what they are. They're made up of questions and the questions are meant to reveal what, what you know, what's true of, of what you know. When, when scripture says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. That means we need to be asking some questions. This is not something we want to obsess over all the time. You don't want to live in just morbid introspection where you're just always looking at yourself and terrified that, oh, what if I'm not saved? And I, oh, I'm just looking at, staring at myself all day long. You'll, you'll end up hopeless probably if that's how you live your life. But there is a time and a place to ask questions. That's what an examination is, that's what a test does. It asks questions. It says, sincerely, why do I go to church? I go to church. Why? Uh, maybe you read your Bible. Why am I reading Scripture? Jesus said, you search the Scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, he says to the Bible scholars of his day, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Jesus says, "There's a, listen, there's a way to read the Bible every day, and you still go to hell. That's what the Pharisees did. They searched the scriptures thinking that in them they had eternal life, and they refused in their Bible reading to come to Christ. To entrust themselves to Christ, to delight in Christ, to be resting in the finished work of Christ. No, they rejected Christ, but were big into their Bible. And Jesus says, listen, why are we reading our Bibles? Is it just to have knowledge, just to earn our salvation, or is it to know Jesus, to come to Christ? I mean, sincerely, I know that there are days where it's like we're checking the box off with our devotions. I know that's probably true for everybody in this room. There are days you're just trying to get it done and we're not happy with ourselves, but those days happen. I know that that is true, even for the most genuine Christian. But I wanna say, is there still a regular part of your life? Maybe not every day you don't wake up this way, but is there not a real, genuine hunger for God's word? Is that in your life? Like, I mean, a, a hunger and thirst after the things of God. Is that true for you? Would people around you say that it it marks and characterizes you? Not perfectly, not all the time, but is there a real desire, a thirst for the living water of Jesus? A hunger for the bread of life that is Jesus? And when you read the Bible, not every day, not every time. I know sometimes it is boring. Sometimes you don't want to read. Sometimes you forget to read or you choose not to read. I know there there are struggles. I, I get that. We still sin. I get that. But here's what I'm telling you. Are there times where on a I hope on a regular basis, when you go to his word and when you go to prayer, you are truly seeking the face of the living God. You want to commune with the living God. Do you know what that even means? Do do those words mean anything other than religious jargon to seek the face of God as you read? I don't mean you hear a special voice. I don't mean you see a vision. That's not what I mean. I mean, as you read his word, does he reveal his glory and his beauty to you? Does that ever happen? Does it happen sometimes? Is it, is it happening more than it used to happen? I know there are days we're bored, but is there a hunger for God and His truth and a desire to truly seek after Him? 2 Peter 1.10. If you read 2 Peter 1, the first 12 verses, we're not going to do that right now, but Peter gives us a test to see some attributes that are growing, and he says this, verse 10, 2 Peter 1.10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, or to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Now, do you hear that? Peter is saying, look at your life a little bit. See, is there godliness that is growing? Is there hunger for righteousness growing? Is there a love for Jesus? It's up and down, but is it? You know how the stock market sometimes is going like this, you know? But you hope over time it's going up, right? You hope over time it goes like this. Over, Is that how you are spiritually? Do you look back? And yes, if you measure yourself by hours or days, you're going to get depressed because there are down days, there are up days. But if you look back over six months, six years, however long you've been a believer, do you see ups and downs, but do you see progress as you go? Have you seen some, 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 some growth in those areas? And Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm that God has called and elected you. In other words, God is going to give evidence of the salvation in your life by how you are transformed. And we should, we should be aware and we should look at those things. Now, let, let me say this. There is a danger with introspection that you become caught up looking only at yourself and you forget to look away to Jesus ten times to Christ, one time to self. So listen, if you're looking at yourself and maybe you have a personality personality, we call this the Eeyore personality, okay? Uh, our kids are getting into Winnie the Pooh sometimes, so I'm, I'm remembering all the great stories about Eeyore, just going, it's sunny now, it's sunny now. Eeyore, yes, but it'll be raining soon. You know, that, that, that kind of personality. So if you have more of an Eeyore personality, we all are wired differently. Some of us have different struggles than others. If you have this introspective, very dour, melancholy, tending toward depression sort of struggle in your life more than the average person, if that's true for you, you need to hear ten looks to Christ. That's what you need to hear. So if you're if you're always looking within, you're going to say, "Well, ah, what if that motive wasn't right?" Or, "Well, I don't know about that." And I, am I really loving the Lord? Here, here's what I'd say: You need to be get caught up in worshiping Jesus. You need to get you, get some solid uh, songs offline and listen to them, and ask the Lord to open your eyes to the beauty of Christ, and and just sing songs that are about Jesus, who He is, what He's done, and, and just just sing along or or listen to those songs and pray to the Lord that you would get your eyes fixed on Jesus. Get around friends who love the Lord and will encourage you. I'm sure you have some. Maybe in this room. Friends who love Jesus, and when you're around them, they just encourage you. Just a personal true story here, just an interesting note. Uh, Last Sunday night, on my way to community group, I was feeling a little discouraged. And I kid you not, I I think I told my wife a little bit about this afterwards. I don't remember all the details I said, but, but, but this is true. On my way to community group, I was feeling discouraged last Sunday night. And when I left community group, I did not feel discouraged anymore. I felt encouraged. That's completely true. It changed my whole outlook that night. You see, what happened? I heard other believers talk about the work of the Lord in their life, and it actually changed my... It changed where I was at spiritually. It helped me. It lifted me up, and I went home that night feeling much more encouraged than when I went. That's not an advertisement for our community groups. It's just true. That's what happened to me last Sunday night, although probably should be an advertisement for community groups at the same time. So if you're, if you're introspective and morbid, there's a place for that, but it's a small place, and you need to look out to Christ. But let me tell you this also. If you look within and there are serious concerns... I mean, there are habitual sins that are just controlling you, and you can't seem to get free of these things. And you you really don't think you love the Lord very much. And the Bible is almost always boring. Those are serious concerns. And, and you need to go to loved and trusted friends and you need to lay that out to them and ask for prayer and then open the, the word of God and plead with the Lord to open your eyes that you might be able to see the truth and beauty of God's word and to be encouraged. Now we're gonna move into the main body here of the message. And I've got four uh, four marks that you are building your house on the rock. That's what we're going to walk through for the next few minutes. So four marks that you are building your house on the rock. Let me read our passage again. So four marks that you are building your house on the rock. Matthew 7 again verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I'm not even sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly. I just, and This is newer to me. Uh, there, in Judea, where Jesus is when He's preaching these messages in that area. You've seen the topography, and maybe you've been there, but you've seen the topography. Very arid, very deserty wilderness, and there's lots of ups and downs and valleys. And there are something called the Judean wadis, W-A-D-I-S, wadis. And the R.C. Sproul does a great job at explaining what this is. But th- these are the areas where when you have uh, rare rain in uh, these kind of wilderness regions in the Middle East, uh, they just sit there. They look, like, they look like, you know, mini Grand Canyons. Just like little mini Grand Canyons sitting there and there's just hardly any plant or vegetation life. And then a few times a year, you have the rain come pouring down. Some of you have probably been a part of these in, in real life, but you have flash floods. I'm, I'm talking intense life-threatening if you're not aware of them, flash floods. Where all the water has no, you know, the grass is not there to catch it. There's nothing to slow the water down. The water pours down these dry riverbeds, down these embankments and they come together in tributaries making more and more of a raging river that flows when it's been dry for months. This huge river just comes out of nowhere going down the road at 20, 30, 40 miles an hour and just takes over. I looked at some recent videos of of these happening in in the Judea area just to see what it looks like. And these floods come suddenly and sometimes unexpectedly and they are extremely dangerous. Well, Jesus is talking about that kind of environment, and he's talking about two different homes that were built nearby. These homes are probably close to each other because they face the same storm. And something we'll talk more about, there's no indication that these two homes looked outwardly very different from one another. They're just homes. From the outside, you would not know which was the good one which one was the bad one. They are just two houses next door to one another, but one of them underneath the surface, invisible to the passerby, one of them is built on a solid foundation of rock, and one of them is built on no solid foundation but only sand. And when those floodwaters come, that seasonal rain comes, the floods push up against this house and the rains beat down and the, the, the wind is blowing and the house without a foundation which was not known from outside, suddenly is broken apart and swept away by the flood. And the, the house on the foundation withstands this great fall. Well, the floods could refer to many things, I'm sure. Uh, they could they could refer to the trials of life, but I think they refer most directly to final judgment because that's what this whole text is about. On that day, I never knew you, he says, or I did know you. And I think he's talking about the, 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 the judgment fire, the, the judgment uh, of God, in which the final state of these homes is revealed. So, the first mark I would like to discuss here. Four marks. You're building a house on a, on the rock. Number one, good fruit is growing from your transformed heart. Good fruit is growing from your transformed heart. I want you to turn with me to the right to Luke chapter six. And Luke has a similar account of this same story, but gives just slightly different perspective that helps us better understand. Luke chapter 6, to your right. So again, good fruit is growing from your transformed heart. And and I'm going to read here Luke's account. Very similar to Matthew's, but but listen here. Uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 43. Luke 6, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. So the good is coming from the heart. The fruit is coming from the heart. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 46, for why do you call me Lord, Lord, I'm going to read a quote from a book. I'll tell you who wrote it in just a second, but let me read a quote about this very parable uh, from an author. listen Listen to this author. Quote, I wonder how many years the foolish man lived in his beautiful house on the sand before the storm came. Should any of us assume we're above making his mistake? Would Jesus warn us of something obvious? The wise builder chose a different approach. Jesus said he built his house on the rock. That involved work and strenuous effort. It took more time. The wise builder is the one who comes to Jesus, listens to his words, and then puts them into practice. This activity, this faith-filled approach to Jesus, the acceptance of his truth, and then the application of the truth is what Jesus said is like a man who dug down deep and built on a solid foundation. When problems and trials and the storms of life came, the house of his life kept standing. I think that's a pretty good uh, description of what's going on in that particular passage. Now, here's the shocking thing about what I just read to you. This is a book I used to give out at our church. It's based on this parable. It's called, Dug Down Deep. It's written by Joshua Harris, who 10 years ago, I would have said this is a good book. It's endorsed by, let me just tell you who endorsed it, and there's no no reason not to endorse this book when it came out 10 years ago. J.I. Packer, Wayne Grudem, Jerry Bridges, Johnny Erickson Tata, John Piper, Mark Dever. I mean, it's endorsed by everybody, and it should be, it's a great book, right? The guy who wrote this book who said, listen, this whole book is about how you need to dig down deep, make sure your foundation with Christ is secure, don't build on the sand. This very man has, since he wrote this book, renounced his entire Christian faith. He divorced his wife. He's come out in support of all kinds of, uh, of, of sexual issues that are not biblical, and he to this very day says, I am no longer by any definition of the word a Christian, Joshua Harris. Now, here's why I read that. I gave this book out a few years ago at our church before he left the faith. I had no idea that was going to happen. Even a guy who wrote a book on this parable, a pretty good book on this parable, telling you the very dangers we face, he himself built on the sand and he himself has fallen away from the faith. So I want you to know, you you can know the material in this section as well as to write a book on it and still deceive yourself into thinking you've built on the rock when in fact you've built your life on the sand. He has a whole chapter urging you to build on the rock when he unbeknownst perhaps to himself did not realize he was building on the sand and when, when, when things came later in his life, he left his church, he left his wife, he left his family and ultimately left the faith altogether. So take that as a serious warning that we should not take things for granted here. We should test and we should see uh, where we are in our walk with the Lord. So you see here, the fruit comes from a transformed heart. Uh, Paul Tripp one time gave this illustration back years ago when uh, he would talk about fruit in your life and this is what he said. He said, uh, imagine I have in my backyard an apple tree that produces every year uh, dry, awful, inedible, pulpy apples. Every year, that's what it produces. And my wife says to me, honey, can we do something about the tree in the backyard? And finally, he says, I've got, I've got an idea. I've got a brilliant idea. I am a horticulturalist to end all, horticulturalists.' Okay, he says, okay, I got an idea. He goes to the store and he's gone for a while. He comes back and his wife sees him walking through the backyard with a long step ladder and uh, with a nail gun and with three bushels of red, delicious apples from the store. And he gets to the tree and he sets up the ladder and he climbs up the tree, starts cutting off all the little disfigured apples. And he takes out these red, delicious apples and he starts nail gunning them onto the branch. And he's out there for hours, sweating up a storm. He's got this tree looking absolutely beautiful and radiant. He comes down from the tree and he comes inside and he tells his wife, come out and see what I've done. And she comes outside and she says, um, I think we have to call the people with the straitjackets because he's, he's really lost it at this point. I don't know what to do at this particular moment. He said, okay. Obviously, that's insanity. That's foolishness. What happened in that story? What happened was he was nailing fruit onto the branches that were not actually coming from the heart or the life of the tree. They weren't connected to the sap. They weren't connected to the life or the root system of the tree. They were simply externally put on the outside of the tree. And guess what? In a few days, they're going to rot and fall off. And next season, it's going to produce what? The same dry, pulpy, inedible apples that it's always produced. And he said, there's a great tendency. He was talking about Christian schools, but I would say it applies to churches, anybody who raised in a Christian environment. There is a tremendous pressure growing up in a certain environment. And this is not always a, this is a good thing. I'm glad that we have pressure towards godliness, but there can be a pressure to say, okay, I'm going to externally place certain behaviors on the branches of my lives to look like I'm really walking in submission to the Lord. But the question is, is it coming from the life of the tree? Is it coming from the root system? Is it coming from the heart? Are, are, are the behaviors and actions that we are producing in our life coming from the heart? I, I know I quote this verse at least once a month, I feel like, so I'm not going to apologize, but I'm going to quote it again. Second Corinthians 3:18 says this, "And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing the glory of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's not apple nailing. That's real transformation. Here's the picture. The veil that was covering our eyes to Jesus, where we could not see the light and beauty that shines from Jesus when we were unregenerate, right? When we were not born again, the gospel was was not, we could not see the glory, And when the veil was lifted off of the gospel and our eyes were opened, we saw the glory of Jesus. And the more we looked at it, the more we were being transformed from within. Our desires, our loves, our affections were changing and beginning to point towards Jesus. And suddenly, actions start taking over. We are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next, from glory to glory, step by step. Aren't you thankful that it says step-by-step in that text? It's not perfection overnight, but as as MacArthur said, it's it's not the perfection of your life that we have upon conversion. It's a change of affection that leads to a change in direction. It's not perfection. It's a change of affection, change of our loves that leads to a change of direction. And if our heart is transformed looking to Jesus, our behavior from glory to glory is going to become, it's going to begin to look more and more like Jesus. Just one simple illustration. As you begin to not just know in your head, but taste and see the patience of Jesus in your life. Just just that one attribute, patience. You know, Paul talks about his conversion. I was killing Christians, persecutor, but God saved me to show his perfect patience to all who were to trust in me. As you dwell on God's patience towards you, if you taste and see the glory of Jesus in his patience, and his kindness towards you, it is going to have a transformative effect on your heart where you savor his patience and you savor his kindness. And guess what? It's gonna to start to show on the branches. Does that make sense? As, as we begin to taste it in our heart, it's going to begin to show. We're still gonna at times lose our temper. We're still at our time gonna to have to apologize for being irritable or whatever, I get that. But there is gonna be more and more a show of the patience and kindness of Jesus coming out and flowering on our branches if it is true down at the root system of our heart. Point number two, your outward righteousness is matched by inward righteousness. This goes right along with point number one. Your your outward righteousness is matched by inward righteousness. One more time, your outward righteousness is matched by inward righteousness. One commentator said this, quote, the broad and easy way, is the way of external religion, not that of whole person righteousness. Okay, I know I've said this a lot, but some things are worth repeating about the Sermon on the Mount. If there's one thing that has become so clear to me, studying this over the last number of months now, it's this. Jesus is not contrasting outwardly moral people with outwardly immoral people. That's not what he's doing in this sermon. There's a place for doing that. That's just not what Jesus is doing in this sermon. The whole sermon, he's contrasting two kinds of outwardly moral people. One outwardly moral person treasures things on this earth, is overwhelmed with distrust of the Father, paralyzed by worry and fear, absolutely in love with this present world and is showing it by the way that they live. The other one, outwardly moral, has a life inside that is matching up with the external life before us. This is why Jesus said to frame the whole sermon, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So turn real quick to Matthew 23, Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to read a few verses here about the Pharisees, and this is exactly, I think, what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, Matthew 23 is that long chapter of intense rebuke between Jesus and the Pharisees on the week of his death. Matthew 23. And and here's what I want you to look for. Look for the contrast between the outward self and the inward self. Okay, the outwardly moral self and the inwardly immoral self. That's that's a huge deal for Jesus here. So Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm sorry, just let me pause again. When we use the word hypocrite, we normally mean, tell me if this is true. When we say hypocrite, we normally mean someone who says one thing and does another. When Jesus says hypocrite, he means someone who outwardly does one thing but inwardly loves another. You see, that's different. So he's contrasting the outward and the inward self, and he calls that hypocrisy. So, verse 25 for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, you're outwardly moral, but inside, this is the heart. They are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and plate, that's the heart, and that the outside also may be clean, that's the outward action. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, you remember last week's sermon? Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not talking about people who are outwardly lawless. Do You see here in Matthew 23... These people are outwardly righteous, inwardly lawless. And he says, that's the mark of an unbeliever. Their outward self does not match their inward self. You see? Now, let me, let me say a word here. I, I have to say a word. I am not for one second saying that we always feel as excited about obeying as we outwardly act. That's not what I'm saying. But, but you've got to ask questions. Is there a real difference between your outward self that you show to people and your inward passions and loves and imagination. Where are you at? And just to pick one one particular sin, and there's a lot of sins we could look at. Take the sin of lust, which Jesus makes a big deal out of in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? He says, you don't commit adultery. That's great, right? You're you're avoiding outward sin. That's great. And then what does he say? Lust, he says, "You, you look with your eye of lust, and you lust in your heart. And he says, if you're not willing to battle lust, not just outwardly, but inwardly, He says, if you're not willing to gouge out an eye and to cut off a hand, to to, to take lust seriously, to fight internal lust, not just outward adultery, he says, you'll be cast into hell. So Jesus in this sermon is emphasizing inward godliness, not simply outward conformity to particular rules. You can turn back to Matthew 7. All right, point number three. So again, marks that you are building your house on the rock. Mark number three, you know and are known by Jesus. You know and are known by Jesus. Again, Matthew 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? and do many mighty works in your name. Those are all external actions. And verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what is a mark of someone who truly is building on the rock? They are known by the Lord Jesus, and it goes with that, they know the Lord Jesus. They know and are known by Jesus. Now, I'm going to give a cross reference. I would never have known if I hadn't been shown this one, okay? This one comes from Hosea chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. It's amazing how similar this is. Hosea 8, Israel says this Hosea 8, 1. Or it says, Of Israel, they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me, God says, to me they cry, My God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Now, do you see this? Israel says, we, Israel, know you, God. We know you. Of course we know you. We've got a temple for you. We worship you. We bow down to you. We offer sacrifice to you. We we know you, Lord. And the Lord says, you don't really know me because your life is transgressing my law and you are constructing idols for yourself. You are trying to worship me and other gods simultaneously. And the Lord says, that's not a mark of truly knowing me. A mark of truly knowing the Lord is resisting idolatry and truly worshiping Him and Him alone. On that Thursday evening before Good Friday, Jesus prays in the upper room, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing God is eternal life, and 1 Corinthians says this, 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So knowing God is going to show itself in a commitment to the Lord. You know, Genesis 4, Adam, Adam and Eve are married. It says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The idea of knowing God of all the peoples of the earth, God says, you only Israel have I known. It says in the New Testament, now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, you should turn away from the weak and worthless idols that you used to worship. Galatians 4 says, so knowing God is a relationship. It is, it, it is, a, it is a relationship based on the love of Christ and on his finished work that we know and love and serve the Lord God himself. All right, let's move to our last point and then I'll have a conclusion. Uh, point number four, you experience godly grief over your sin, not worldly grief. You experience godly grief over your sin, not worldly grief. Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter seven. You experience godly grief over your sin, not worldly grief. Second Corinthians chapter seven. And look at uh, verses. 9 to 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice, not that you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So here's a quick example of the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. It is not a mark of con- conversion that you feel bad about your sin. Judas felt really bad about his sin. When he betrayed Jesus, he realized what he'd done. Here's what Matthew says. Uh, uh, Judas, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests of the elders saying, I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. I mean, that sounds, that sounds amazing. He's not a believer. I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. He feels terrible about what he did. They said, what is, what is that to us? See to it yourselves. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out and hanged himself. What does Paul say? Worldly grief over sin produces death. Literally, in Judas's case, it produced death. It does not produce freedom and joy and acceptance in Christ. It doesn't produce those things. Worldly sorrow produces absolute despair, hopelessness, and in this case, literal death. Whereas on that same night when Judas betrayed Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver. Peter betrayed Jesus with cursing and swearing. And yet we're told when the rooster crowed, Peter said, it says of Peter, he went out and wept bitterly. He wept and repented, and then he was restored. He met the resurrected Jesus, and then 50 days later, he's preaching at Pentecost boldly that Jesus has risen from the dead. What's the difference? They both did a terrible sin on the night of Christ's death. Terrible sin. Betraying, saying you never knew Jesus and using God's name and cursing to confirm it is a terrible thing to do. Horrible, blasphemous thing to do. That's what Peter did as a Christian. And Judas that night betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Horrible sin. Preferring 30 pieces of silver over God in the flesh. Terrible sins. One of them, his grief led to nothing but absolute despair and death. The other one, he wept bitterly. He turned to the Lord. He received full and free forgiveness. He was restored to his place and he preached boldly 50 days later at Pentecost. The difference was true conversion, founding on the rock can lead to a tremendous sense of freedom and forgiveness. When we truly own, confess and repent of our sin and trust alone in Christ's finished work for us on the cross let me conclude the message with, with this. If you feel uncertain or even hopeless at this time, hearing the last couple of sermons on these very weighty texts, my goodness, let me remind you of some things. Number one, in the Christmas story in Matthew 1, the angel Gabriel tells Joseph, you need to name, name this baby Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to make salvation and forgiveness available. So if you are uncertain of where you stand with the Lord, call out to the Lord to open your eyes, to forgive and change your heart, and to fill you with the Spirit, and then pray that the Spirit would confirm, testify with your spirit that you are a child of God, and that you would cry, Abba, Father, from the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, ask, And it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. This is an open invitation to come to Jesus and to have life in him. And I'm going to close with a long quote from Spurgeon before I pray. I just can't beat Spurgeon. He's just fantastic. And Spurgeon writes this about how inviting Jesus is. Just come to Jesus. That's the invitation here. Listen to these words. Take me a few minutes to read. Please, please focus in on these words here. Spurgeon writes this. Consider a few of Jesus' names and titles. Frequently, Jesus is called the Lamb. Blessed name. I do not suppose there is any here who was ever afraid of a lamb. He says, that little girl yonder, if she saw a lamb, would not be frightened. Every child seems almost instinctively to long to put his hand on the head of a lamb. Oh, that you might come and put your hand on the head of Christ, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. Again, you find him called a shepherd. No one is afraid of a shepherd. If you were traveling in the east and you saw Bedouins or Turkish soldiers in the distance, you might be alarmed. But if someone said, oh, it is only a few shepherds, you would not be afraid of them. The sheep are not at all timid when they're near the shepherd. Oh, poor wandering sheep, perhaps you have come to be afraid of Christ, but there is no reason why you should be afraid of the heavenly shepherd. Timid, foolish, wandering though you may be, there is nothing in the good shepherd to drive you away from him but everything to entice you to come to him. Then again, Jesus is called our brother, and one always feels that he may approach his brother. I have no thought of trouble or distress, which I would hesitate to communicate to my brother here, for he is so good and kind. I do not think I could be in any trouble, which I should not expect him to do his best to help me out of. I never feel that there is any distance between him and me, nor do you, I hope, feel so with regard to your brothers. Even so, is it with this brother born for adversity Believer, how is it that you are sometimes so backward and so cold toward Jesus? Christ is approachable. Here's the last part. You need not think that your troubles are too trifling to bring to Him. He has an open ear for the little daily vexations of life. Brethren, you can come to the good elder brother at all hours. And He says, and when He blames you for coming, let me know. He is called to a friend. But he would be a very unfriendly friend who could not be approached by those he professed to love. If my friend puts a hedge around himself and holds himself so very dignified that I may not speak to him, I would rather be without his friendship. But if he be a genuine friend, and I stand at his door knocking, he will say, Come in and welcome. What can I do for you? Such a friend is Jesus Christ. He is to be, he is to meet, he is to be met with all. Let me say that again. He is to be met with by all needy, seeking hearts. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would reveal to us how approachable you are. In Luke 15, it says, even the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to hear him. How approachable you must have been and still be if the worst of the worst felt comfortable drawing near to hear You speak, Lord Jesus. You are the Lamb who takes away our sins. You are the brother born for adversity. You are the shepherd who takes care of all of our needs and will guide us to green pastures and to bring us to lie down with still waters and restore our souls. God, I pray for any, if we are in any way hesitant to race to You, hesitant to run to You, maybe thinking of our past failures or sins or even uncertain at times of where we stand in our walk with You, I pray, God, that we would fling everything aside that's holding us back and that we would race into Your arms, that You would forgive us fully, freely, and forever, that You would remind us that You provide all that we need in Yourself, that the thirst in our soul can be quenched and satisfied in the living water because on the cross, Jesus, You said, I thirst. And we know that you offer us living bread to satisfy all the hungers of our soul, because on the cross you were abandoned by your Father in our place and for our sin. I pray, God, as we sing this closing song, that you would invite us to come to Christ, that our hearts would be open, and that we would come, and that we would take hold of Christ by faith, and that we'd have great assurance in the repentance and in the forgiveness of our sins. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.